Hey there, you listen to the Cracked Podcast. And you know what that says about you? It says you're amazing. You are a person who is internet savvy, who is curious about the world, who is just full on neat. And you ought to show that off with a website on the internet. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea, your product, yourself into a unique website. You can customize everything. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. So what are you waiting for? Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Today's show is supported by a new sponsor, Merge Records. Merge Records is an amazing record label. I am thrilled to be talking about them because they're home to a lot of bands I love. In particular, Destroyer. Destroyer is the project of Dan Behar, and it's in my top three all-time period. That top three includes the Beatles, folks. He's amazing. They've also got Titus Andronicus on their label. There's a new Titus Andronicus album, March 2nd. Coco Hames is an incredible singer. She put out a new album with them that, that everybody should hear. Enough of me talking about music. Just go listen to it. Go to MergeRecords.com, M-E-R-G-E Records.com to listen and shop for music by these artists and many others and get 20% off any order using the code Cracked. As always, domestic shipping is free. And again, that's MergeRecords.com, offer code Cracked for 20% off. Merge Records, home of independent music since 1989. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than you think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also a history fan. Or, if you're British, an history fan. Boy, it felt weird saying that. Anyway, I think history is the prime example of why being alive is more interesting than you think it is. It's our story. It's how everybody got to where they are. And it was a genuine pleasure to do a live episode of this show all about how history is funnier than anybody realizes. And you get to hear that live show this week. It's about history's funniest pranks and goofs because, yes, history is full of scary stuff. Within that, it's full of people being fully hilarious on purpose. We've covered tons of examples of that on Cracked before. For example, U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson used to wave his penis at his security team just because. Leonardo da Vinci put prosthetic wings and horns on a lizard to prank his friends into thinking the lizard was a dragon. A guy working on the Manhattan Project. You know, the project that developed the atomic bomb. He accidentally ate some of their plutonium, and then he had to sit out several days of experiments because his radioactive breath threw off their instruments. You guys, the past is a foreign country. It is also the intro to The Simpsons, apparently. You know, Homer gets the rod in his collar. Anyway, we get into all kinds of ways that's true this week. History's funny, so please sit back or take a second and make sure the plutonium you're handling is not going to go into your mouth. Mouth's closed, in the lab, Gene. Just assuming Gene works with radiation. Anyway, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with our wonderful live panel of comedians Caitlin Gill, Christine Madrano, and Blake Wexler. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Let's bring it right out. First off, uh, she is a very funny comic. She's open for Maria Bamford and for Jackie Cation. We're very happy to have her. Please put your hands together for Christine Madrano. Say hi for the people at, at home. 
Hey guys, how's everyone doing? I'm Christine Medrano. <laughs> there should have been more of a reaction. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Good. We need that for everybody too. Thank you. Um, next up, uh, you've seen her on Vice Lands Flophouse, on the Oddball Comedy Tour, and the Outside Lands Festival. Uh, friend of the show, please welcome Caitlin Gill. Yeah. Hi, hello. Yeah. Greetings, uh, listeners. Voice. That's my voice. That is the sound of my voice. <laughs> Robots, rest of the show. It's going to be great. And uh, finally, he, uh, he just put out an album yesterday, I believe, from when uh, we're taping this. It's 12 years of voicemails from Todd Glass to Blake Wexler. And uh, we're very happy to have Blake Wexler on the show. Blake Wexler. Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, you can bring it. Oh, I should say hello. Yes. Hello. Now they know your voice. Yeah. Guys, thank you for being uh, friends and fans of history and uh, people are going to have a real good time with. I think there's just like a sweep of the world that we could get into and um, I sort of want to start with a place that I think a lot of people think of as very, very serious. And uh, Blake, you picked out MIT, uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I did, uh, I did. This is a location where I believe they do science, is that correct? <laughs> There's no way to know for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it seems like it. Yeah, but they might do science there. It's, yeah. uh, it was named after Mitt Romney, that's not a good joke. And uh, <laughs> let's, start, let's start the show off cool. awful. Cool. Yeah, let's put the bar on the goddamn floor. It's, um, all, all seven of his sons applauded for it. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and God, do they have good bone structure. Um, uh, yeah, they would do, so they have like a history, they call them hacks, of course. Um, yeah, God forbid they use such a low term as prank. Um, but uh, yeah, they call them the MIT hacks, and uh, what they would do, I believe this has been happening for like 60 years, like maybe over that, like maybe 80 years, like as if 20 years makes that big of a difference, but um, they'll often do things on their own campus where somehow like, with their genius, they'll attach like, you know, they'll like recreate a room underneath like a bridge randomly. You'll be like, oh my God, there's a room up there. And then they also like, there's this cool dome um, in Cambridge on this very famous building. And on it, they put like the notes to uh, like that song by like like Rick, like being Rickrolled, remember like da 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 da. Like so, they put the notes up there, and it's just it's just bored geniuses is really all it is. It's just like oh, this is what they're doing with their time. And I think the coolest one, also the scariest, is I believe in like 1960-ish. It was like the Harvard Yale game, which is like a big Ivy League football game, as big as that can be, <laughs> and, um, the pinnacle of athleticism. And they like hid this weather balloon, I believe, in the ground. Like, MIT, like, snuck into the stadium before, which now would be, like, an act of terrorism. <laughs> and so, in the middle of the game, like, this this enormous thing, just it just exploded, and then, like, no, uh, the weather balloon rose out of the ground, and it said, like, go MIT on it, and then exploded, and everyone's like, oh, what a great prank! But it really is, like, now it would be like, we need to shut the country down. Like, what the hell was that? So yeah, that was my favorite one, I think, out of the MIT hacks. This was Harvard versus Yale, right? Like yes. MIT had no role. No, no. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? No, they did not. But they I showed I don't even up. know if they were invited. Like they just crashed the party for right. sure. Yeah. Is MIT technically an Ivy League school? I don't think it is, right? It's its own thing. Someone was no. so sure. Oh. Several people in large Cornell gear were like, no. <laughs> never. Big red. 
whatever yeah. they're called. I went to Humboldt State University. I don't even think I'm allowed to say the words Ivy and League together. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that you picked that out because with any of these colleges, like I, I'm from around Chicago, and so I think of the University of Chicago, one of its famous things is that they basically set off a nuclear bomb under their football bleachers, but it was for <laughs> science, right? Like it was right. important. I, f I feel like no one knew what I was talking about. What I meant is that they did some sort of early test when they were figuring out nuclear stuff under the bleachers because there was space. And that's just a crazy thing. Hello. Uh, You're wandering around a campus looking for space for a bomb. Yeah, right, right, right. That's a weird location, <laughs> Scout. Right. That absolutely is. That's like, like losers hanging out of the bleachers. Like, Let's I know. blow up a bomb here. I yeah, just thousands of joint roaches yeah. going up in a plume. <laughs> <laughs> most of these very, very advanced schools, I feel like they spend most of their time on the science. And what you found about the MIT hacks, they were like, just putting fire trucks and police cars on top of buildings yeah. to do it. They're a lot of like, them were very simple, you know, pranks. Like they would just be, hey, look, we built like this, this huge fire truck on top of a building. It's like, I feel like you should be striving for more. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like that, yeah, that's, just, that's state school shit. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> There's another prank here that Caitlin, you pulled out, which is a... Uh, it seems like it's the biggest prank in British history. Uh, they did on, on the BBC, which Brexit? is like real oh, sorry, television. No, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, if you're referring to April 1st, 1957's episode of BBC's Panorama, um, <laughs> then yeah, you're talking about the most famous prank to come out of the good old U of K. <laughs> Not University of Kentucky. There's a, there's a little British news show uh, that went out to uh, Switzerland to film the harvest of a very important crop in Switzerland. What wound up happening was that that crop was not in bloom. Uh, I was looking for the name of the flower and I can't find it, but just believe me, they went out to see a flower and that flower was like, nope, not ready. Uh, but they were in Switzerland with cameras in 1957, which feels like a bigger deal. Like they were heavier, the cameras. So they found a family with a, a nice yard and they needed to get some kind of harvest. So they found some noodles. They hung the noodles in the tree and then filmed a segment of a Swiss family in their annual spaghetti harvest. <laughs> it was three minutes long. You can watch it. It's fucking hilarious. They, the reporter guy is so careful at the beginning to be like, on April 1st, we're reporting from the Swiss family home <laughs> for their spaghetti harvest. But it really is just women in like kind of alpine frock uh, <laughs> holding like baskets and like reaching into trees and pulling off these noodles. And um, the BBC, like I imagine like when they say like, oh, we were just flooded with calls. It's like a woman named Doris in the basement like frantically plugging things into a board. Ah! And it was all these Brits asking where to get the freshest harvested spaghetti. That was one of the things they had to field a whole bunch. People honestly amazed and thankful. Like, I just never knew where my spaghetti come from. It comes in this package. I feel so disconnected from nature's path. And then the biggest call they got, and this is my favorite part, one member of a couple would call trying to resolve the argument that that segment started in their home because one party in the couple would be so certain that that is where spaghetti comes from. And the other person cooks for that person. Like, no, you dumb, you dumb. I absolutely know. I've made noodles with my hands. 
You, we have a pasta roller. You got it for me last Christmas. I hated it, but I still have it. You know where spaghetti cut. They would, they, the BBC operators then had to resolve arguments. They had to choose a side, basically, and that side is that spaghetti was not harvested. So a so, lot of egg and semolina flour on a few people's faces. Yeah, because this show... I know, I like yeah, that. Sorry, sorry. That's very good. That was very good. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Where does spaghetti come from, for sure? It's made, it's not grown. It's not, a, it's not like a carrot. They don't just pull it up out of the... I want to let you believe that. <laughs> I'm just going to let you. But no, pasta is one of the most deceptively easy foods to create by yourself. Yeah. It is a, you make a pyramid of flour. You put an egg in the middle of it, you stir it with your fucking hands, and then you cut it into ribbons. That's what pasta is. <laughs> yeah, Would you well, know Italian the... people in England who could well, dispel this? <laughs> uh, like, I would think that enough chefs would come to, the, 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 to their assistance, but it is an island, and spaghetti was sort of a new item on shelves there. Got it. So people just sort of accepted it. Like, spaghetti showing up on shelves as being like, well, I guess this is like that kiwi I had once. <laughs> right. Like, it comes from somewhere else that's beautiful and not cold and foggy all the time, and then they bring it to us. Or we send a boat out and then enslave them and take them. I assume that that was what they were thinking. <laughs> well, because uh, the, the link you sent about this Swiss spaghetti harvest, which is also just the best name. Right. Like, I, I often forget that in the very recent past, there weren't that many TV stations. Yeah, yeah. there were two at the time in yeah. the right. UK. Yeah. Britain had two channels, and so this fake report went out to at least 10 million people. Right? <laughs> oh, my God. And, uh, and it came from this guy, uh, Richard Dimbleby. And apparently, if you're British, you're like, oh, of course, the most trustworthy man in the world. I've never heard of him. But so the most trustworthy man in the world told at least 10 million people that spaghetti comes from trees. I guess on the set of uh, Panorama, Dimbleby looked directly into the camera and without a trace of a smile said, and now, from wine to food, we end Panorama tonight with a special report from the Swiss Alps. And then cuts to just a, a woman pulling spaghetti out of a tree. <laughs> that would be funny if it started like the weirdest like racist thing about like Swiss people or yeah you know how they are with their spaghetti trees and it's like wait what? <laughs> like, how is that a part of it? I love that but you do right? <laughs> old timey version of going viral. Right? <laughs> like, it was. <laughs> May I offer you a quote from the broadcast that I found uh, particularly delightful very yeah. briefly? Do it, do uh, it. This, was, this is included in the three minute segment. The last two weeks of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. There is always the chance of a late frost, which while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavor and makes it difficult for him to obtain top prices in world markets. But now these dangers are over and the spaghetti harvest goes forward. I love it, I love it. Another reason why this may be a bumper year lies in the virtual disappearance of the spaghetti weevil, the tiny creature whose depredations have caused much concern in the past. Oh, that's a pest. It's just like a little bug saying, that's a spicy pizza pot. Like <laughs> Speaking of broadcasting in that era, do you guys know about the Gemini 6 mission by mm -hmm. NASA? No. no. This was uh, the whole Gemini program. This was relatively early in the U.S. space program. It was Mercury was ships with one guy in them, and then they worked their way up to Gemini, where it's two guys. Amazing, you know? Gemini 6 went into space in December of 1965. It was astronauts Wally Shearer and Tom Stafford. And these two guys decided, why don't we do like a fake Santa sighting? We've got mission control on the horn. We're very bored. <laughs> Let's just like see him. And also the way they did it, they like talked about it as if it was a problem <laughs> for a while. 
Like, they, they, they're just talking, and they're like, we have an object, looks like a satellite going from north to south, probably in polar orbit. Looks like he might be going to re-enter soon. And so the whole time, Mission Control's like, oh, they're gonna die. Like, what do we do? And then eventually they build up to, I see a command module and eight smaller modules in front. The pilot of the command module is wearing a red suit. So he's a Soviet. Like, yeah. right. China. Yeah. Yeah, still tense. Right, right very tense. Mission Control, the next thing they heard was um, like sleigh bell noises. Because uh, I don't know if you know about like early NASA, but they weighed these ships to like the gram, right? Like they really checked what's on it. And so they snuck sleigh bells onto the ship and they also snuck a harmonica on and started playing jingle bells for Mission Control. And then finally Mission Control was like, oh, the astronauts are doing a bit. After like a minute of being convinced they would die. I don't know, I'm just very excited about the space program after that, you know? That's funny, yeah. Yeah. What a dick move, bring Like, you're an astronaut. You've trained your entire life for this mission. Everything about your physical, mental, and emotional being has pushed you toward this one goal to traject your body off of this Earth and into orbit. And in the back of your mind, it's like, well, I gotta get that frozen ice cream or, you know, the tree stride shit. I gotta get, make sure I have a piss bag. Oh, I know. I need to bring some jingle bells. Because <laughs> I know we're gonna be up there at Christmas. I'm gonna, I'm gonna really pull one on the boys downstairs. <laughs> Forget that this two ounces could forever change the space flight right. path that I'm on. You know they high-fived for like five hours so after that entire so program. Like, oh, God, I'm just like mooning space, exactly. like butts to the window. Ah, oh, can't stop us now. <laughs> Looking down on the flat earth. <laughs> now there's a historical prank yeah. that YouTube has played on us yeah. all. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, let's stay in space as well. Because, Christine, you picked out um, there was a, uh, a UFO sighting in the past by uh, a pretty prominent fella. Uh, yeah, Jimmy Carter. Um, one of the presidents <laughs> reported a UFO sighting in like 1969. Keep in mind that like he was like elected like in the 70s, so like m- many years later he was like in office. And to me, like that's just wow, the good old days when, <laughs> when that was the fun quirk about your president was that he had cited a UFO and reported it. Like yeah. to, and apparently it was like as big as a moon and they said it was a weather balloon. Very common thing, I guess, back in the day, right, weather right, balloons. Right. I've never seen a weather balloon. <laughs> but <laughs> no apparently it was supposed to be as big as the moon and it kept changing colors. And so he would, when we got into office, one of the things that he said, one of his big promises was that he was going to release all of these files on UFOs and aliens. And then we got, got and I guess he saw them and then never did. Wait, because really? they were too real. They must be like... <laughs> They must have been bad, is what I'm assuming. But I just love the idea that like one of our presidents has seen a UFO as re- or loved it, like saw something so similar to a UFO that he felt the need to report it. Call the Georgia authorities. Exactly. It's one thing to like see one and like tell your friends, but to like have to like file paperwork to report it. Like yeah. that just seems like that's pretty. That's a, that's adorable now. Like, I love that those same records that Jimmy Carter looked at and was like, no, we can't. I have to. I have to put these away. This is too much. The Air Force just waited for Trump. Yeah. And when he was 
just busy calling people like shitholes or whatever. They they just like leaked out on Twitter like, uh, hey UFOs, we we definitely saw them. We have yeah. lots of pictures. Anyway, what th- what he just tweet? Oh yeah yeah yeah. No, that's what you should worry about. Definitely. <laughs> We've been studying them. They're real. <laughs> <laughs> If they, I mean, I feel like now it's like not even a blip on anyone's radar about them. Because I remember when they were released, and I was just like, oh, it was like a Wednesday, and then it was like <laughs> Thursday, they were like completely forgotten. Well, because Carter was elected in 1976. That's amazing if the UFO files were terrifying even back then. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because our, our technology to look at space was like two tin cans two and tin cans. Neil Armstrong with binoculars. <laughs> and, that, and they were still terrifying. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you guys think. Trump has seen those files, like definitely or no? I mean, I think he might have moved his head in the direction of the piece of paper, but if you're asking about reading comprehension, I'm gonna say that's a hard no. Well, and uh, because there's also, Caitlin, you found something too that's another uh, hardship for Jimmy Carter, because he ran in 1976. He sure did. And he had multiple opponents. Uh, he did. Uh, he had multiple appointments. Uh, opponents. Why am I blanking? Out? Was that Ford? Who was running against? Well, him? Ford, Ford. Yeah, Ford. Yeah, was of the course, was Ford. Yeah. Seventy-four, and then he came, and then a Ford. So yeah, nobody liked anybody who was running for president. So in 1976, a prank began that grew far beyond its origins, uh, and that was a campaign for nobody for president. Um, just something I thought might resonate today. <laughs> the nobody for president platform was largely this. Who should you vote for in the next election? What about nobody? After all, nobody is clearly the best candidate. Nobody cares. Nobody keeps his election promises. Nobody listens to your concerns. Nobody tells the truth. Nobody will lower your taxes. Nobody will defend your rights. Nobody has all the answers. Nobody should have that much power. Nobody makes apple pie better than mom. And nobody will love you when you're down and out. That's an old joke. Nobody for president has been around and people have kicked it around in lots of American elections. There's lots of good cartoons about it. But in 76, the counterculture kind of picked it up and ran with it. There were a few uh, columns written, satirical columns, from the Nobody for President campaign office. Uh, Here's one. There's not a dry eye to be seen today down at Nobody for President headquarters. It's the mail. Each new batch brings moving and poignant letters from ordinary citizens everywhere. There can be no question that nobody's campaign has struck a responsive chord in the hearts of American voters. Really nails the, the national feeling at the time. As the year rolled on and the election rolled on, uh, it picked a few celebrities picked up the cause of nobody for president, and one big endorsement came from none other than A-list celebrity Wavy Gravy. Wavy Gravy was super into it. Once Wavy Gravy showed up, the new slogan was "Rock and Roll Forever." So right on, <laughs> nobody for president, rock and roll forever. Yeah. Well, also I want to do, I want to do a temperature check real quick. Who uh, uh, who uh, clap your hands if you know who Wavy Gravy is? Oh my yeah. God. Let's that get Wavy Gravy's a whole thing. Let's get into Wavy Gravy. Oh, like, Wavy yeah, Gravy yeah. is like a counterculture figure from like, well, from who knows when he was born, and let's just say he's always alive. He's yeah. basically his name is Wavy Gravy, but he looks like his entire body is a mustache covered in gravy. He is sort of a walrusy sweet dude, big puff of white hair. He had a big long mustache situation. The stereotype of the '60s is fully embodied in Wavy Gravy. Uh, yeah. He is a human high dye, a tie dyed T-shirt. That's who he is. Yeah, I think he holds the official title of like court jester for the Grateful Dead, something like yes, that, like that clown for the Grateful Dead. So Wavy Gravy, they did a cross country tour, lots of buses. They did all, went all <laughs> over the country uh, campaigning for nobody for president. And then October 12th, 1976, they ended with a rally at San Francisco Civic Center Plaza. 
like everybody was there and they all had their signs with the like, you know, nobody, you can trust nobody, like that kind of stuff, which was pretty cool. And Wavy Gravy, who wore clown makeup and a blue tracksuit, because that's a hot look, uh, <laughs> propeller cap included. He started to announce the motorcade. The nobody motorcade is coming. No one ever came, because nobody's coming. Uh, nobody was represented by the uh, by novelty plastic wind-up teeth that Wavy Gravy just put on a stage. So there was just a chattering set of teeth that became the embodiment of nobody for president. And honestly, has my vote. They held a victory celebration on elected, election day, November 2nd, because they pointed out that 43% of all the voters who could vote didn't. So they voted for nobody. <laughs> So nobody did really good in the 76 election. Technically, I think he's been president every election since. Um, <laughs> the campaign repeated in 80 and 84, but it never hit the, the high point it did in 76. Again, it was just the perfect cultural moment for that kind of thing to be a thing. And I love that they just took it. It's a dumb joke that they turned into a cross-country rally. Yeah. And it says something about the times that uh, so many people were like, yeah, fucking nobody. That's... Yep. <laughs> That's the right choice. Did you I, look up Wavy Gravy? I did. I assumed he was dead. Um, <laughs> but he isn't. Um, he's not. And he's, yeah. But I did find his, for some reason, they just showed his signature. Like, and his signature is in print, of course. It's not cursive. <laughs> and uh, it's all lowercase. Um, but the A in Wavy is capitalized. And then uh, no gravy, just a G. So uh, wavy, wavy G. G. Yeah, hell yeah. What's cooler than that? Nothing. It looks like that guy looks like the zipper on his fly has been broken for 44 years. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so. He's just like cornering you at a barbecue telling you to drop out of college. Yeah, sure. definitely. definitely done that. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and now we bring out our next panelist, Wavy Gravy. Uh, folks, please. No. Oh my God, I'd be so excited. Probably could book it, it is an amazing era that I didn't know was quite a thing. Like, I feel like, I feel like the 70s was just a time when all of America was like sitting around waiting for a thing to do. You know what I mean? And then they were like, oh, a campaign for nobody? All right, let's go across the country. It was this or disco dancing, I guess. I don't know. I'm just around. You know? <laughs> we're much busier now to me. I don't know. <laughs> Now you would just start like a Twitter account and move on. You wouldn't do it like a cross-country tour. It's true. Yeah, this would strictly be a Facebook movement. Yeah, now. exactly. You would not have to leave the comfort of your toilet. You could just tweet away from there. <laughs> let's do. Let's do another political movement too. Christine, you brought up uh, a real change in Canadian politics. Yeah, I'm Canadian. Hello, Canadians. If you're at Ooh. home listening or in Round the of audience. Round applause for Canada. Yeah, hello. Let's fill that silence. Um, and it's a, it's a 2009, they passed um, a law that seemed necessary only in Canada. It's called the Apology Act. That sounds right. That sounds about right. And so basically, it's that if you're at like a crime scene or something has happened where there's an accident or you're in court and you say the word sorry that it's not used as like an admission of guilt, but rather just like you're trying to be sympathetic and that kind. Is that, is that the most adorable Care Bear thing you've ever heard in your entire life? That's so precious. And so I guess there was such a problem with lawmakers that they would just be like, oh, you said sorry, that's an admission of guilt. That they had to be like, no, we're just Canadian. <laughs> and we are so sorry for this. Um, and so it, 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 it passed in 2009, but my question was like, how held up was like Canadian court before this? Like, I feel like there were just so many people who were falsely accused because they said <laughs> sorry. 
and they were just they didn't mean it they just meant it i just think this is adorable um and i can absolutely understand why i like i feel bad about bringing it up now i'm so sorry <laughs> and so yeah in courtrooms now so if you say sorry it just kind of like hey we're sorry too. <laughs> like, everyone's gonna do a round of sorry. Um, I this is so interesting because I'm like an American living in Can I mean a Canadian living in Canada, and I've definitely been at like in car accidents where I'm like, don't say sorry because it's an admission of guilt, so and being funny. conscious of it. So right. it's good that they have an act now, but they needed an America for Canadians living in America now too. <laughs> oh, don't worry, we don't care about your yeah, politics. Yeah, exactly, we don't care about our politics. But I just thought that was like an adorable little quirky um, thing that we have in Canada that you would never ever have in America. Um, right. so true. Like, for us, right. it's go fuck yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. The Go Fuck Yourself Act of yeah. 1971. Like, I'm still shocked when people, like, don't wave thank you to me when I let them in. You know what I mean? I, my, my windows are so tinted that no one can ever see me, like, be like, thank you. So I have to, like, over at win wind down my window to say thank you to let people know when they, like, let me in. Is how Canadian I am. The politest merger. The license plate I grew up with, I'm from Manitoba, the license plate literally from where I'm from say friendly Manitoba. It's just the most Canadian thing ever. I mean, that's the most Canadian law I've ever heard of, the Apology Act. Yeah. I don't know, like mandated pancake consumption seems <laughs> up there too. I feel like more like beaver tails, I feel like. Beaver tails covered in maple syrup. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I love that law too, because I feel like almost all laws are, if they're a good law, they're overdue when they finally happen. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it, we've been pushing for years and years to get, like, clearly Canada has been a land of apologies all the time for <laughs> decades and centuries, you know? And, like, finally it's on the books. Like, it I, just speaks to the history. It's great. Yeah. It's like a loving tribute to an apology, too. It's like a law that protects the apology. Like, we need to preserve a Canadian's right to apologize. <laughs> Anywhere and everywhere. At the scene of a murder. During a car accident. Canadians need the right at all times to apologize without consequence. You have the right to say sorry. You not be held in contempt of course for apologizing. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Are you ready to start your new business? Are you ready to show off that blog or fan fiction or diary or just cool block of text because you know how to write? Are you ready to make yourself someone who is online, someone who has a presence there, someone who is easy to Google? We'll do all that stuff with Squarespace. Because with beautiful templates created by world-class designers, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea, your writing, yourself into a new and unique website. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea, your product, your writing, yourself into a website. You can customize everything about it from the look and feel to the settings and products on it. And the site will be optimized for mobile right out of the box. The site will work and look great and feel right on the phone that you might be listening to this podcast on. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And if you do have a question, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. They gotcha. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code CRACKED. Hey, grown-ups, guess what? You can make this Valentine's Day one that you will both never forget with this amazing offer from adamandeve.com. 
Through Valentine's Day, you'll receive 50% off just about any item. Just go to adamandeve.com and you'll find thousands of adult entertainment products, including toys, lingerie, and a seemingly endless selection of adult DVDs. But there's more. Okay, here's the deal. You can get their romance kit for free by placing that order. That romance kit includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something they know you'll both enjoy. That is mysterious and fun. Plus, a free adult DVD to put you in the mood, and they'll throw in free shipping on your entire order. I can't believe that deal as I read it down. So, check out adamandeve.com today for this special Valentine's offer that's 50% off one item. A free romance kit and free shipping when you enter offer code CRACKED at checkout. CRACKED. C-R-A-C-K-E-D. You can read it right off the logo, and you can use that code CRACKED at adamandeve.com. Archaeologists love old rocks. It's like their favorite thing. They've uh, found old, like, Greek and Roman rocks uh, that were used in slings. You know, like David and Goliath, like a sling, you throw the rock with it. And it turns out that, I guess, soldiers got bored, right? And so they would write messages on the rocks that they were going to use in their sling. And it's a very, like, you know, like Full Metal Jacket, the helmet says born to kill or something like that. Greek and Roman soldiers would write uh, really aggressive messages on their rocks for the slings. So, like, if you were an ancient soldier, you might have died of a rock that said, and these, these are translations, uh, take that. <laughs> uh, feels redundant, but sure. Uh, eat this, which is great, really good. Also, fuck you, uh, whatever the equivalent was. And then, I really, really like this, I hope this hits you in the dick. Boys will be boys. You know what I'm saying? We really will. <laughs> that would be funny. Just this insecure soldier who just wrote, like, my son won't speak to me, like, on the rock. Or, like, like, <laughs> I could have done better. I should have been a philosopher or whatever they did. Um, <laughs> Canadian soldier. Sorry. <laughs> What I love is like we we uh, vault, like vaunt the the Greeks and the Romans is like oh they gave us Western culture you know and all the philosophy they were also like I assume I hope this hits you in the dick is like ten words in Greek like it's a lot of chiseling you know <laughs> it's a big rock it was a big rock yeah <laughs> OG trolls committed <over> <laughs> his hand hurts so bad getting to the C in dick but it's just one more letter you got to get all the way. <laughs> Well, also, I, I assume ancient times were less, uh, uh, I don't know, enlightened, educated, etc. Like, the other side might have been a culture that didn't know Greek or Roman, you know, <laughs> Latin. Uh, so, like, they might have got hit, like, a rock comes over, and they're like, what are all these markings? I don't, why am I even stopping to look at this? Yeah, right. We're in a battle. Like, oh, right. Wounded. Yeah. Wasn't, though, I mean, it's not surprising, because we do uh, give Greeks and Romans credits with uh, giving us lots of civilized stuff to use, I guess. But also, weren't they responsible for the first widely distributed printed manuscript and wasn't it just fucking porn? I would believe it. This is, I don't, yeah. I don't have all my facts straight here. It but I was. At least some of this is true that archaeologists have sifted through and the first, the oldest paper they found, they keep finding like repeat bits. Like they found the first pulp novel, basically the first mass distributed printed thing. And it's just a dirty ass story. It's, so there's all these shreds of paper that nerds sweating into their glasses have carefully brushed off, and it's like, and Harf cummed on her titty? I don't know if this seems explicit for the Armenian, but that's what it is in the Armenian. It's, the oldest book is porn. 
Well, I would believe it, and also I love the idea of, you know how like when the internet was very, very early on, I feel like there was sort of a trope going around of like, oh, it's just pornography, right? Like that whole medium is, I like the idea that that thought was out there once about the medium of writing. Because it was, just yeah, like that's literacy, accurate. people were like, ah, literate, uh, writing is smut. You know, just <laughs> words. <laughs> right. so I was reading today, pervert, yeah. <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> reading. <laughs> Porn How dare you read in public? Yeah. Uh, he reads. <laughs> you look at your eyes with those mothers. It was good. You also see gross stuff come up in like what was uh, just every medium. I think over time. Who's heard of the Bayou ta- Bayou Bayou Tapestry? I don't know how to pronounce it. B a y e u x. Uh, this was, it was a, a long tapestry to record the Norman conquest of England in like the 1060s. Uh, so they were like, oh, we want to write about people from northern France conquering England. And we're not doing a book, we're like sewing a wall, you know, they were really going to do it. Sewing a wall. Yeah. And uh, so they made this whole 70 meter long tapestry to record everything that happened. Like, oh, remember when we brought grain along? This is that guy doing that, you know, and you have the whole thing. And in one part of it, there's a big naked guy, and no one knows why. And he has, like, an enormous penis. There's no reason for it, and he's doing sort of a Heisman pose. Oh, I think there's a reason for it. Yeah. <laughs> there's a few good reasons. And there's also... <laughs> the whole panel is fist pumping, if you're listening to this now. I got some finger guns going. It's a good time. She does. <laughs> There is <laughs> there's so many funny things happening. Uh, next to that on the tapestry, there's a depiction of a priest slapping a lady in the face. Also, no one knows why. It's not clear what the what oh, she knows to why. <laughs> there's also a caption under it, and it doesn't really explain what's going on. But they're pretty sure that the word being used for lady is the like Norman old French version of babe. Like they're talking like it's some sort of version of priest hitting a babe, which <laughs> is real weird for like a sewn government document. A sewn, a sewn document. The needlework that's needed to like do this giant penis and the slapping right. a nun. Stitching the lady's needle pointing a little, just a giant dick. Bigger, bigger, <laughs> use the wider thread. <laughs> <laughs> Assassin stabs hunk. It's like, wait, what? Why are you using babe or like it's such an odd word? Comparing different mobs for the head of the dick. Like, I don't know which thread is right. <laughs> we gotta get this right. <laughs> I'll have to restitch the whole thing. Yeah. I, think, I feel like it's just one rogue artist, like that one Disney animator that's always putting a penis into every movie. Yeah. Just the dude like sneaking in yeah. at night with some needles and thread, like. <laughs> Draw a big old dick on it. <laughs> That's such a weird devious sneak with yarn and like. Little sewing kit. Do, 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 do. He drops it a cat, you know, just anyway. <laughs> Galen, you uh, you picked one out from uh, 1930. 
uh, and it was like an old old school college uh, college newspaper uh, bit. Yeah, this was uh, another like little idea that uh, went a little bit farther than the people who made it intended. Um, in 1930, a bunch of Republican leaders, and I consider this a uh, as I'm obviously a partisan person. I will say I consider this prank to be largely bipartisan and its response. But in 1930, a bunch of Republican leaders uh, received letters inviting them to a party at Cornell University in honor of the, let me see if this is a word, the sesquicentennial birthday of the esteemed Hugo Norris Fry. Hugo Norris Fry was uh, claimed to be a little-known patriot of central New York, and he has been deprived of the fame that should have been his for his part in the organization of the Republican Party in New York State. So uh, letters went out to all these Republican leaders, inviting them to a party honoring one of their party's founders, that it was gonna be a big event, it was gonna be a gala. Uh, of course, any time you receive an invitation like that, you are expected to at least reply. So although no senators could make it, almost all of them sent some kind of RSVP. Secretary of Labor James Davis wrote, it is a pleasure to testify to the career of that sturdy patriot who first planted the ideals of our party in this region of the country. If he were living today, he would be the first to rejoice in evidence everywhere present that our government is still safe in the hands of the people. The thing is that he wouldn't be alive that day because he was never alive. There was no Hugo Norris Fry. <laughs> Hugo Norris Fry did not ever help the Republican Party develop in New York. Uh, in fact, uh, if Norris stands for N, then Hugo's name is Hugo and Fry. A couple of college kids out of Cornell wrote some letters telling Republican senators, you go and fry. And all of them responded, thank you so much for my invitation to you go and fry. But uh, I'm, I can't make it. National papers picked it up because it was kind of a delight that all these stodgy senators, A, didn't have Google, so they could not look up whether or not this was a real person. And B, all of them responded. So a bunch of newspapers ran like quotes from all these senators who had been duped. <laughs> they were very embarrassed. And what I love about it is that no one was like mad. Like all the senators' press releases were basically like, you got me. Like that was the whole of the response. And eventually the two did apologize because this did gain a lot of attention. And although they were good sports about it, it's not great press to be like, you didn't know that you were being told off. Like you missed a pun. A, that's embarrassing. That's the only thing more embarrassing than making a pun is missing yeah. a pun. Because the because the insult is you go and fry. Yeah, think, you go and fry. A, a which is like a very to us now, but sure. I think to them it was like Amanda hug and kiss or something like it was a real yes. clear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was Seymour Butts. It's yeah, the yeah. Seymour Butts <laughs> of its day. I love the response, and I love that people's reaction was so mild and just kind of like ribbing. Uh, and I love that the students also had to apologize basically only because it got publicity. So their whole apology is like, we meant for it to be a campus prank and it sh we didn't mean to have so much publicity. We intend no disrespect to you, your office, or the Republican Party, and sincerely apologize for any annoyance we may have caused. We appreciate your good sportsmanship. Didn't that feel good? It's very pleasant, yeah. You know, doesn't that exchange feel good where someone yeah. like committed a prank that was entirely lighthearted and then it went a little too far, and instead of that person who was pranked getting angry, they didn't. And then the pranker apologized for the inconvenience. I mean, it feels like fiction. It's like, I love it. It's like, ah, oh, shucks, journalism. Totally. Ah, like, jeez. Oh, yeah. oh, come on. I love that they did it. I love that nobody noticed that they were being told, you go and fry, which is such a dumb insult anyway. And I just love that they were good sports about it. I hope you'll realize this, this really went far. Like, this really reached a lot of people in the country. Like, yes. this, uh, Charles Curtis said, I congratulate the Republicans on paying this respect to the memory of Hugo N. Fry and wish you a most successful occasion. And Charles Curtis was the vice president 
He was, he was uh, Herbert Hoover was president, Curtis was his vice president, and he like, this was 1930, he like took time out of the depression to like write a letter to these guys about their prank. It's amazing. It's such a well-executed, stupid prank. I also love puns, shamelessly. You can try to shame me, you can't do it. Uh, so I, I just love watching them work. It's always nice. There's, um, uh, there's another thing here, uh, the, the dreadnought hoax. Have you guys heard of the dreadnought hoax? No. This was the dreadnought, this happened in 1910, the Dreadnought was the name of a ship that was the flagship of the British Royal Navy. So this was an empire that ruled about a quarter of the land and people in the world. And this was the main ship of their navy that made that possible. And they showed around a group of Abyssinian dignitaries. Abyssinia was what Ethiopia was called at the time. And so they showed them the ship because the dignitaries were in town and they wanted to show them the ship. In actuality, the dignitaries were like college kids from London who put on disguises. And one of them was the author uh, who would uh, later marry and be named Virginia Woolf. So Virginia wow. Woolf and her friends put on like turbans and also brown face, which is terrible. I was gonna uh, say, yeah, um, yeah. And they should, that's like, a tough one, yeah. all right. I was, so that's not cool. All right, but, yeah. Like a famous author and her friends toured the most important ship of the most powerful navy of the most powerful empire all day for fun as like a bit and got in the papers with it and the whole navy was embarrassed and also the person in charge of the ship was her cousin so her cousin did not recognize her and her brothers in goofy disguises just walking around the boat as like racist as it is to put on brown face relax even more racist is the fact that these people just thought that that's what non-English people look like. Yes. You know, it's just like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just what they look like. Yeah, sure. I guess people yeah. from Ethiopia look like us, but with shoe polish on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> right, it was just clearly some chemical that they, it was probably a very bad makeup job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, and they apparently, they uh, like just spoke Latin and Greek to each other instead of speaking like a, a African language of some kind. And the guys on the boat were like, yeah, uh-huh, foreign language, great. <laughs> and so they just got to run around the boat all day. And then later she became one of the most famous authors of all time. It's, it's thrilling. <laughs> one of the sailors was her her, I love your work. You know, like, He's <laughs> 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 just winking at her. It's, yeah, I, I know. Yeah. They're stupid hats. <laughs> So much effort to just go on a boat. Yeah, it's like, yeah. like shoe polish, turbans, racial appropriation. Right. <laughs> it's a long way to go yeah. for a boat tour. From yeah. your cousin. From your cousin. cousin. It seems like you could have made a phone call or send a telegram. I don't yeah. know what you would have had to do. But you sign up for a tour. Yeah. <laughs> Two quid, you know, like whatever. <laughs> whatever the currency was at the time. <laughs> Blake, you're in a lovely Philadelphia Eagles sweater. I am, and, thank uh, you. You're clearly a fan of uh, Philadelphia sports. I am, I'm miserable. <laughs> <laughs> Not today, today I'm well, but yeah. Oh good, thank uh, you. Well, uh, and you picked out uh, a, uh, a fun baseball thing. Love baseball. Uh, I think it's very, very funny when like uh, athletes choose to do pranks, because I think a, a well-executed prank like in, uh, includes like nuance and and um, just a, a type of intelligence that athletes do not have. And uh, so, oh, well, this um, prank really, really made me laugh. Like, it was from my hometown, but it was the kind of thing where um, also in, like, a prank, I think, like, coordination and the amount of work that goes into a prank, I think, is very, very funny. For instance, we were talking about, like, you know, uh, the one with the astronauts earlier. It's just, like, why, like, the amount of coordinate, of, like, bringing things aboard yeah. when, you, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, 
why do it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and other than it's self, it, all it is is self-amusement. In 2008, what um, the uh, Philadelphia Phillies did is they convinced this player that uh, he had been traded to Japan which is not, that doesn't happen. Like, you know, you can't trade someone to another country. That just has never, ever happened. It's against the rules. And right. they said that they traded him for uh, a guy named Kobayashi, who is a very famous hot dog eater, which, as a sentence, is very depressing. But that is, that is, he was a very famous hot dog eater. So, like, the coordination that went into it really, really made me laugh, where, like, they brought in, like, this poor guy wasn't even a famous baseball player. He was some, like, low-rung, never-played. <laughs> they brought him into the office, and they brought his agent into it, and, like, the general, like, the guy who's in charge of the trades and his coach, and they're like, yeah, you know, like, you're, uh, you're going to have to move to Japan tomorrow. <laughs> and the guy was so bummed out, and, like, yeah. they really coordinated it so where all the players were in on it, and, like, no one told this poor guy. And then in his mind, he went from, like, oh, I'm enjoying my time in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They're like, yeah, you got to move to uh, Japan next year because uh, we traded you for a guy who eats hot dogs. And the guy was so bummed out and it cracked me up. And then they were like, oh, we got you good. And he didn't like really laugh about it. I think he was just really sad. Like the whole thing. He was so sad. And uh, that's funny to me. <laughs> yeah. Because if, if, if people are baseball fans and, and are curious, it was 2008, the player was Kyle Kendrick. Yeah. And then uh, the other player, Brett Myers, kind of organized it. And like you said, they got in other players, his manager. They also got local media involved. So then they did a locker room interview where the manager and his agent, who were all in on it, were telling the interviewer, like the, the video, they're like, yeah, and we're, uh, we're trading Kyle for Kobayashi. And we're really hoping it's okay. And Kyle's just standing there, very stone-faced about the yeah. whole thing. Just very upset. Because his whole life is, a, is falling down around him. He's like, I have to, I don't speak the language. Like, I have to, he barely spoke English, you know? And he's from, like, some state. But, like, yeah, like, it was just such a bummer. And the guy who pranked him, like, is just like... Uh, actually, he was—he's a huge piece of shit uh, person. Um, just like, and now he has like a country music career, which is very like odd. But the media being involved is very funny because like usually there's an adversarial relationship between like people being reported upon with media, and particularly in sports. So the fact that like they were able to like wrangle like everybody was so gung ho about punching down, you know, like on this person, like yeah, let's get him. It was just like sharks. It's just yeah, the issue with sp like sports. You know, we're just like, ah, let's take out the week. You know, like, it was just such an odd, an odd thing. It was like, why spend your time doing that? You know, hazing him. Yeah, yeah, it was like well-coordinated, like non-violent hazing. Emotionally violent. Yeah, which is worse. Yeah, far more damaging. There is like regular hazing in sports a lot. Like rookies right. will have to carry stuff for guys, or they'll like make somebody wear a costume while they do something or something, yeah. you know. They made this guy think he needed to move to Japan tomorrow morning. It's like, what do I tell my mom? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, what do you do? You just send her a new address. <laughs> but, <laughs> but your care packages are going to be a little more expensive to ship. Um, yeah. Speaking of, I want to do, uh, this one, it also involves uh, just a guy getting shocked. Uh, this is uh, World War I uh, Russia. Right? I don't know how much people know about the history of that, but toward the end of World War I, the Russian Revolution happens, and then Russia is pulling out of the war. They're like, enough, we're now a communist country, and we're out of the war. 
And so they're going to have a meeting between the Russians and the Axis powers to just negotiate Russia getting out of it. Or it wasn't the Axis, it was the Central, I think. Anyway, so they're going to go to this treaty signing in Brest-Litovsk, and the Russians are like, we're communists now, and we're going to celebrate that. We're going to bring regular people with us. We're going to bring, <laughs> we're going to bring a soldier, we're going to bring a sailor, we're going to bring an urban worker, and we're going to bring a peasant. All right? It's going to be great. And so they start, like, driving or taking a train. Uh, they're driving to Brest-Litovsk to do the treaty signing. And they realize they only have three of those four things. And they're like, it's really important to us to have a peasant as well. And so what the Russians do is grab a guy. They just, like, pull over the car and, like, try to find a dude who looks like a peasant. Kidnapped, yeah, I kidnapped. believe, is the, yeah, the proper term. Yeah, yeah. And then they kidnapped him. Yeah. And so they grabbed this guy. His name was Roman Stashkov. And they grabbed him because he was poorly dressed enough. They thought, like, that looks like a peasant. Great. That's what I keep waiting to have happen to me in Hollywood. <laughs> That's the one! The girl in a dirty sweatshirt and yoga pants at Vons at 3 p.m. Get her! Just do a pitch meeting for <laughs> Men in Black 8 or whatever the hell. <laughs> whatever they're working on. So this, uh, this guy, they, they drag him to the signing, and then the other people they picked are, like, uh, coached. They know to just, like, hang out and be proud of communism. And... This other guy is just wandering around like, I would like to go home. And <laughs> there's, it's, and these treaty signings take forever, so it's a lot of weeks, you know? And he, uh, they want him to be all proud of communism, but he keeps calling all the dignitaries master, like, which is weird. And, uh, and then he also apparently is drinking as much wine as possible. I, love, yeah, I, I love this guy. This is like Russian <laughs> King Ralph. And, uh, and so he's just like very drunk uh, the entire time, not supposed to be there at an important treaty signing that uh, shaped the course of world history. I mean, maybe this is not the right way to live, but um, <laughs> whenever I get invited to a party of like people who are way more wealthy than I am, it's just like, oh, I'm not used to this level of booze. Like, sure. I'm gonna get fall down drunk because oh. you shouldn't have brought me, yeah. you know. <laughs> You shouldn't you have kidnapped me off the streets. I, I have been poor enough long enough that if it is free, I, it enters my body. Yeah. So if you put me in front of an open bar and appetizers, it's just, I'm, I will consume all of them. I have no response. How could I? This caloric intake is vital to my financial situation. Yeah. So, oh man. So that's, that's Hollywood in a nutshell, is me being so poor that I have to live on the appetizers of the fancy parties I also have to go to. That is my LA experience in a nutshell. It's desperately parking a mile away because there's no way I could pay the valet, but I still gotta be there. <laughs> and he'd go back home and I feel like no one would believe him. You know, to be like, oh, I got this yeah. treaty signing, I'm real drunk. Like, yeah, yeah, Roman, what's his name? Roman, you hungover pile yeah. of shit. You just so was a crazy bender. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you saw a treaty? You yeah. Alcoholic? <laughs> yeah. That's the last thing someone would believe when you're coming home reeking a wine. I don't know, I was snatched into a car. I know there's only 10 of those in yeah. Russia. It's 1919. <laughs> <laughs> but I got dragged into a car by a bunch of guys in fancy suits and then I was around a bunch of people from every other no you're not with me no you just think I was drunk in the potato field out back for two weeks all right yeah sure you got kidnapped by Lenin yeah sure yeah sure buddy Lenin then okay there's thousands of people saying yeah. that <laughs> and you're the one who made it out I just love this is like a painting with him or like a photograph or something like right there was so a, like funny. A sort of 
Like it, like it's a painting, but somehow he's photobombing it. Like yeah, he's way he's too far in front. Like, uh, he photobombed it for an hour and a half. <laughs> it's Master, like whole, yes. It's like a panel of suits looking dignified right at the artist and just him in the back of the snack table. Like, <laughs> I think uh, we're, uh, we're getting to that time when uh, you folks can line up if you have any uh, history you'd like to share with us. And uh, while, while people are, are uh, milling over there, I want to... Uh, Christine, you picked out something that's just, like, the most positive accident. It it's seems the best. Like, yeah, it seems like it could have been something that was horrible. It was a church bombing, um, and there was supposed to be a choir practicing, but no one died because every single person in the choir was late. Like, I just... That's the most oh L.A. God, way great. to not die. I mean, this was in 1950 <laughs> in Nebraska. <laughs> But every single church member was late, and so no one died. What a what a great ending to that story, though. That's right? great. Yeah. Like church got destroyed, but you know what? We're okay. We all just went for like pie afterwards or something. <laughs> like, right? Because so they were gonna gather an entire choir, and if they if anybody had been on time, they die. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, I, that's amazing. It's like the opposite of Final Destination. You know, <laughs> like, you're not meant to die. You had to like it, the reasons are like someone had to like iron their dress. Someone else was finishing listening to the radio. They were all like solid late reasons. You know, like they were all like no actual reason to be late, but they were like yeah, yeah we're late. Sorry. I'm an atheist, and I still believe it was God protecting them. Right? <laughs> I say. Like, that must have been no, divine I mean, intervention. God's got that like long telescope thing looking down, just like I see some of the white ones doing something terrible. <laughs> I'm going to make that boil over on that stove. I'm going to wrinkle that dress. That kid's going to throw a tantrum and we're going to put a flat tire on that Buick out there. I think that should take care of it. All right, we're good. Cool. We're good. All right. That. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, also I love that it was 1950 this happened. Yeah. And my conception of 1950 is that there was absolutely nothing to do. Right? Yeah. Like if I had choir practice, I would be there 12 hours early. <laughs> right? And everyone got distracted. Everyone was Everyone's like, like uh. messing around with their phone somehow. You know, and it's great. Let's, uh, we've got a couple people lined up. Go ahead and just give us your name and then give us your prank goof or other fun thing. Yeah. Hi, and, I'm Duncan. Uh, so I apologize if I botched this because I can't remember everybody's names, but during the American Civil War, there was this one point in time where the Confederate Army was holding a fortress uh, that the Union really needed. And the general at the time, who I believe was General McClellan, was gathering the Union troops to go storm this, uh, this fortress. Uh, the Confederates at the time had absolutely nothing because they were the Confederates. They just decided to fight for you know, horrible things. And uh, what they decided to do was, oh, hey, what if we just painted up the fortress to make it look like it had way more cannons than it does? So they just got a bunch of logs, painted <laughs> them black, and the Union troops, when they arrived, it was night. So McClellan saw all these random things that to him looks like cannons and said, oh, no, it's too dangerous. We have to wait until morning. And that gave the Confederates enough time they needed to just bail. So, like, that could have been a fight that ended the war early. But because of what we would have considered a prank, it went on for another, what, like two or three years? Yeah, there's no way to know for sure how long that war went on. But, yeah, no, that... But um, McClellan was, like, all quiet along the Potomac McClellan, right? Was that his thing? Like, he yeah. was, like, that general where it was just, like, everything was just... He would always be so cautious that I think there were multiple instances like that where he could have ended the war, but he was like, oh, logs! And, like, he just wouldn't end the war. Like, that's why he was replaced. I just didn't know Wiley Coyote was a Confederate soldier. <laughs> oh, no. 
That's amazing. Uh, yeah, painted cannons. Thank you for that, Logan. Yeah, that was yeah. great. That's great. ridiculous. And while, and while we're at it, there were a few like sneaky operations in World War II. One of them involved an inflatable army. Like they wanted to Amazing. trick the, the Nazis into thinking that there was an allied army massing to do not D-Day, like do a different D-Day somewhere else. And so they did a bunch of inflatable tanks and like, and like painted fake uh, wagons and stuff. And they did like, so from the air, it looked sort of like a D-Day force, but it was actually just stuff they put up. That's great. hilarious. All the theater actors who like went to war totally came up with that. Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. Also, if all our best technology comes from military research, I feel like there's a direct line between those inflatable soldiers and robotic sex dolls now. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Lucas. Uh, I'm Lucas. Disgusting. Hey, Lucas. Sorry. Yeah. There's a lot of like pranks that people do in art. Like I love Frank Zappa because he just likes yeah. to, he, he just liked to mess with people in different ways, but there's one like really really crazy influential piece of art that there is no way in hell you could ever convince me it was not a prank, and that is Duchamp's fountain. Do you, do you not know this piece? <laughs> We're both not okay. nodding. But no. <laughs> okay, so uh, it, basically, this artist Duchamp he just took a urinal, laid it down, wrote R dot mutt M U T T on it. He just said, there it is. There is my, my art piece. And he tried, to, he tried to submit it to, in 1917, to the Society for Independent Artists, who was holding their first like, massive uh, exhibition at uh, the Grand Central Palace in uh, New York City. And all you had to do to be in this exhibition was pay the entry fee. That's like, that's they rejected <laughs> his sculpture. <laughs> Because they were convinced that it was, like, the more you read about this, the more it sounds like something that Nathan Fielder would do. He's like, there is my art piece. And they go, no, this is not going in our exhibition. He's like, but I paid the, I paid the, the fee. And they go, no. So the, he went and he commissioned a photographer to just shoot it, it like hard lighting, just dramatically. And it's a fucking urinal, <laughs> just yeah. laying on its side. Just, and by, like the 1960s, he made 16 more copies of it. Jesus, like, here's a urinal. I'll put it on its side and just sign it. There is, and it is one of the most influential pieces of 20th century art. <laughs> I'm almost, I can't even imagine that the people who cite it as such aren't also just in on the prank. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it, it's, it's just like a big conspiracy to just go, hey, let's like, just all the artists got together like, let's just mess with everybody and pretend like this is brilliant. <laughs> it reminds us people standing by it in a museum, like pondering its meaning, its effect on their life, how it's transformed them, realizing they have to pee, leaving, <laughs> going to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like Jeff Koontz, he just puts like a bunch of, uh, he just puts a bunch of vacuums up there. He goes, it's art. And people are like, yes, it is. It's like, no, this is a store. Like, this <laughs> is a store. It's like, yeah, it's like Sears is going out of business. We understand. Right. <laughs> But it, yeah, there's just, nobody can ever convince me. I, when I was in college and we did history of art, my teachers started talking about this piece. I go, this is a joke. This ain't real. I'll, I'll never accept it. <laughs> you know who it's not a joke to? The bar manager where that guy drank and stole that urinal from. <laughs> He's or where not he stole laughing. the urinal from. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm assuming that's a, a bar, an idea that comes to you in a bar which you are too comfortable at, <laughs> and you're just shit housed, and then you rip the already falling urinal off the wall and laugh and leave. 
And then you don't get to go back to that bar anymore. I'm not speaking from personal experience. No, 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 no it sounds like it was very detailed, Caitlin, what you were just saying. Because you can't just buy a urinal. You know, like, you ever but go to your friend's house, you go to their a urinal. And yeah. it's porcelain. Yeah. I don't know how easy they were to get your hands on at the time. Probably shouldn't touch them anyway. Imagine going to your friend's yeah. house, going to the bathroom, just a urinal attached to the like wall. It's just like, oh yeah, this person's a killer. <laughs> <laughs> or a millionaire. Yeah, or a mil- Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the yeah, or they're so the rich, they have options. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine having enough money to change the way you shit or piss? No, I cannot. That's all sitting down. <laughs> to me. It also kind of reminds me there was that uh, like experiment with art where they had like children draw art and then great artists and they showed it to people and they had to guess like which one was which, like which one was the great artist and which one was like a child and people could not tell it apart. Yeah. Because they're just like pretend just being like, oh, I see the lines in this. It's like, oh, it's like a little girl with like a crayon. Well, or even when uh, occasionally elephants paint. And then, and then, once in a while, somebody will be like, and then we showed these elephant paintings to an art critic and got the art critic's opinion. I'm like, no, the opinion is it's great. <laughs> An elephant made it. Yeah. That's amazing. You know? It's He's time to meet the artist. It's like, wait, why aren't they coming through that tiny door? <laughs> They're opening the side of the building. <laughs> and thank you, Lucas, for the two shots. Thank yeah, you. thanks, man. So uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we say thank you to our whole panel of Blake Wexler, Caitlin Gill, thank you. Christine Madrano. Thank you. And thank you guys for coming out to the show. We will be back here February 10th. And uh, in the meantime, get home safe. Have a good night. Thank you. Yay! Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Caitlin Gill, Christine Madrano, and Blake Wexler. And in our food notes, you will find links to their work, their social media handles, and more. I can't recommend them enough. Aren't they great? Historical goofs and pranks there from Cracked Articles and elsewhere. Also, did you enjoy this live episode of the show? Well, the audience in the room got to hear this show weeks before you did. And they got to ask us questions and stuff. That's pretty cool, right? Well, if you'd like to have as much fun as they did... Our next live episode is March 10th. Mark your calendars now. March 10th, we'll have more info about that show real soon. And as far as this episode goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Mary Kelly, edited by Chris Souza, and supported by Jay Spaulding, Eric Cohen, and the whole UCB Theater team. Thanks, guys. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a thing that will be in actual history books because the president uses it to bully opponents, threaten journalists' lives, and not wish his wife a happy anniversary. You can find my Twitter account at twitter.com slash alexschmitty. That's my name with the letter Y on the end. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. Same spelling, same deal, and we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.